Brew Strong is brought to you by morebeer.com, where a man can brew like a man. For the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Sainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Back for another episode of uh, Brew Strong with my uh, delicious co-host, uh, John <laughs> Hey, howdy, hey. Delicious. Delicious. Yeah, no, people people say they like uh, greetings, greetings. You know, it's... Uh, I tell you, that, I, I, I gotta go with them. I think that's I think that's your best one so far. Okay. I, was, I, was, I was tempted to go with the underdog one, you know, there's no need to fear, but, uh, you know, yeah. maybe that's been a bit pretentious. Yes, yes. Greetings, greetings. That's you. That's really you. <laughs> okay. Well, and uh, we're also uh, blessed with uh, Dr. Charles Bamforth, uh, better known as Charlie to uh, everyone he speaks with, I guess. <laughs> he's very unpretentious as well. <laughs> and uh, a great guy. And he's uh, just spent uh, about an hour and a half talking about uh, beer haze with us. So uh, if you're listening to the archives, go back and find that show. Also find his show on Hot Side Aeration. It was also excellent. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of Q&A. Uh, as you know, this show's done live, and we have uh, listeners in the chat room, and we've got some questions from them. And we're going to do that until uh, we run out of time, which is about uh, 50 minutes from now. So let's, uh, without further ado, why don't we get that first question going? Great. Uh, Wonderbeer from Finland wrote in to us this week. Uh, good questions from him. Are post-fermentation pH levels in beer worthy of closer attention uh, than they're currently given? More like uh, they are for wine, for example. Uh, or is hitting the correct pH in the mash and boil good enough? Uh, pH makes a significant effect to uh, beer quality. So, uh, sure, I think pH needs to be attended to uh, quite carefully. Um, uh there is a, a re- I did a review on pH a long time ago in the Master Brewers Association Journal Technical Quarterly, um, and there's a whole bunch of different factors which will influence the the pH of the finished product. Um, one of the key things is 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 freshness, flavor stability. Um, the lower the pH, the less flavor stab- stable a product becomes. Um, so if you've got a beer at four, it's uh, more prone to staling than one at 4.5. Uh, having said that, um, a beer is more microbiologically stable at 4 than it is at 4.5, um, both because ah. of the uh, pH effect and also because uh, the the bitter acids, which are antibacterial, anti-lactic acid bacteria, they are more potent uh, at lower pHs. Uh, so the pH um, can have a direct influence on stability, and it can have a direct uh, both haze stability, sorry, flavor stability, and on uh, microbiological stability. In terms of foam and haze, there are different opinions on that. It's a mixed bag. Now that's interesting because uh, I had some beers analyzed by uh, a local good-sized brewer in their lab, and they were they were telling me that uh, my pH was a little high. And I was like, you know, 
running around, you know, four or five or or so. And he said, ah, yeah, I was a little high. Maybe it should be a little lower. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, my beer's pretty good. <laughs> I, I never made any sort of adjustment based off of that. No. And I'm glad I didn't. I yeah, was like, uh, you know, um, chasing numbers, I don't think is necessary. If the beer tastes good, you know, don't necessarily chase the number. But if the beer doesn't taste good, then you, correct, you need correct. to Correct, correct. You know, and, uh, I know. Clearly, there are some beers that are way down in the threes, and, mm-hmm. you know, that have been produced with an interesting collection of other microorganisms. but uh, And they're very sour, of course. So the, the pH has a direct influence on sourness. It was interesting that a number of years ago, we, we actually tracked a very famous brand of beer. Um, and that's what we used to do. In, in, well, that's what all self-respecting brewing companies do. They see what the competition is doing. And we monitored the pH of one of our competitors' um, lager beers. And it went. they'd moved it over a period of time from 4 to 4.5. And we watched them do it. We actually plotted it out over about a 12-month period. They didn't do it overnight, mm-hmm. just, you know, to mm-hmm. see it. But over a 12-month period, I think it was because they wanted to take a kind of a sourish edge off the mm-hmm. the, the product. It was a fairly gently flavored lager style beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and its its pH is around 4.5. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of the, the, the pH for a beer, the proper pH for a beer, is kind of dependent on style. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it will be influenced by you know the the the, the malt for example the the more intensity you kiln you you will tend to uh, lower the the, the pH, pH. Right. so uh, sure but most beers are between four and four point five you know some beer towards three nine some a little bit higher than four point five but not many. Uh, but of course, there is a whole collection of beers, um, including the lambics, for example, that are much lower pH than that. Right. Uh, and I have to say, you know, uh, I mean, a friend of mine used to get very cross with me uh, if I say what I think a good beer is and what a bad beer is, and, and uh, you know, how dare I? Just because I got fancy letters on my card, tell <laughs> tell her just how good this beer is or that beer is. But you know, a base lambic is it's it's it makes me appreciate how good some other beers are. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the ones with cherries put in. You know. yeah. <laughs> I almost poured one of those for you, Charlie. I'm glad you've said that. <laughs> okay. Quick follow-up to that. Uh, Wonder Beer wants to know what acids are typically present in finished beer. A whole bunch of, of, uh, of acids. Um, uh, you're going to have a little bit of lactic acid. You're going to have some acetic. You're going to have some succinic. You're going to have some citric and so on. Basically, they're going to be produced by the A lot of them are going to be produced by the yeast. Um, and organic acids are, are direct products of, of yeast metabolism. So the acids that are found in the in the metabolism of the yeast, they will spill over and come into the, uh, the finished product. The pH, you know, p- people say, well, you know, during fermentation, the pH falls. It goes from, you know, five and a half, to, let's say, to four. Why is that? And, and basically, it's a release of acid. It's a release of, of the hydrogen ion, which is basically what you're measuring when you measure pH. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how about the effect of carbonation and carbonic acid? Yeah, clearly. Uh, mm-hmm. CO2 is, uh, you know, carbonic acid. Um, it, you know, it's an it's a equilibrium there. So um, the CO2 itself, of course, is, uh, well, there's a whole story in its own right. It's got a whole sharpness to it. and uh, Yeah, it reacts with the pain receptors. Hmm. And I, I can't remember the precise story. Actually, in Davis, uh, we have a... Um, a professor by the name of Earl Carstens, I forget which department he's in, but he is a world authority on pain. Uh, 
um, pain reception on the palate, and it's the trigeminal sense. And I can't remember, he explained to me how it works, and, but, but certainly pH comes into that and, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the, the pain receptor and the, the, ac- the uh, hydrogen ion. Um, and I can't remember. Uh, he's quite a character. He's, he's, he knows a lot about rock music as well. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> they go hand in hand. More than I do. I know nothing. <laughs> he sounds like a very unhappy man. No, he's a, he's a remarkably happy guy. Oh, good. Because <laughs> <laughs> pain, you see, you, you love it, you know. <laughs> All these chilies. And makes the... everything else seem so, so great. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, John writes in from Utah, and he's interested in brewing lower alcohol beers. Uh, he says, I don't know how to do this. You know, how do you keep the same flavor and other important parts of the original <laughs> recipe, but keep them uh, low alcohol? He said there's not a lot of info on this subject. Is, is the state relevant to this question? <laughs> um <laughs> Um, it's a, you know, we, again, we could devote the next hour to that. Um, you see, the, the big problem is alcohol makes a direct impact on flavor, and it makes an indirect impact on flavor. So if you don't have any alcohol there, um, you, you lose the bite and the warming and, and the alcohol note, but also it influences the distribution of some of the other materials in the into the nose, into the headspace. Um, and so, you know, it's very difficult to make a truly low-alcohol beer that really is uh, of, a, of a high quality. How to do it? Um, well, there are various ways. One is uh, not to make the alcohol in the first place, and the second way is to make the alcohol and then strip it out again. Uh, right at the start uh, of the the last segment, uh, I talked about a, an alcohol-free product that we used to sell in Saudi and other places. And uh, the way we did that was to make a full-strength lager beer and then strip all the alcohol out of it by um, uh, low heating under a vacuum. And so you drive off the alcohol. The problem is you drive off so many other flavor compounds as well mm-hmm. all the esters and the higher alcohols and so on they oh, all get yeah. sucked off as well so then you have to add them back and because there's no alcohol you can't get the right mix you know so it, it's very difficult to do that you can produce something which is you know you'd say okay it's it's beer like but it you know it just doesn't have the ooh, that you you want from the alcohol the other way to do it is not to make the alcohol and um, that's how you could do it uh, at home and the way to do it is to mash in at a higher temperature Um, the the classic temperature of mashing is 65 Celsius so I I think that's 144 Fahrenheit is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah This 145, dreaded, yeah. dreaded Fahrenheit. Yeah. Anyway, 65 Celsius, you see. And there's a, a balance point there because that is the temperature you need to gelatinize the starch. But that is the just about the highest temperature that the beta amylase, one of the starch-creating enzymes, can stand. So as you start to raise the temperature, uh, you kill off that enzyme. You keep the alpha amylase, which, which, which break initially breaks down the starch but you need the beta amylase to make the fermentable sugars and um, you kill kill it off so if you mash at 72 degrees celsius if you want to do a quick calculation well that's but 72 degrees celsius (laughs) 162 then you will 
you will break down the starch, but you won't convert it to fermentable carbohydrate. And therefore, when you ferment, you produce less alcohol. And that is probably a better route to go. And so you produce a lower alcohol product um, that is kind of so-so. Mm-hmm. What some people do is is they just basically use wort. Um, uh, you know, it's got all that raw, harsh, you know, green character that, that really mm-hmm. I... I, I you know, and people say, "Oh, it's authentic." Well, it's, that's just it smells like a brewery. It doesn't smell like a beer. It smells <laughs> like a brewery. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so the yeast, by using the yeast, you can clean that up. Um, and if the wort is less fermentable, so the, the way to go is is a mash in at a higher temperature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and one of the things that drives me nuts is people say, "Well, you know, if you have a, a higher temperature, uh, you know, the beer is sweeter and it's maltier, and it's uh, no, 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 no. It's uh, you're forming longer chain dextrins. They really don't have a whole lot of flavor to them. Oh. They're they're not really sweet. If you if you taste uh, maltodextrin powder, I mean, it has maybe a kind of a little subtle sweetness to it, but really overall effect is not necessarily that." It's um, you know just uh, unfermentable sugars and and the flavor profile remains the same, and you know I used to think uh, you know you would always get more body from a, uh, a higher mash temperature, but even that's not true. No, it's it's uh, you know that was that's another myth of of homebrew right. legend, and uh, you know there, it's a much more complex. Uh, 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 process than that. Well, you mentioned mouthfeel, you know, and that's still one of the great mysteries of, mm-hmm. of what really does determine the mouthfeel of, of, of beer. Earlier on, I, I mentioned, you know, is it polyphenols? No, I don't think so. You mentioned dextrins. Um, my friend and, and colleague, the emeritus professor Michael Lewis, uh, years ago did a study and showed, you know, you need to add bucketfuls of, of dextrin per a bottle of beer to have an impact on mm-hmm. mouthfeel. Some people say it's glycerol. I, you know, we talked about carbon dioxide and this tingle and so on. I, that, that's clearly something to do with mouthfeel. And, of course, anybody who's ever had a beer with nitrogen gas in it knows mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that that smooths uh, the mouthfeel, sometimes to an excessive extent. Um, so, uh, in terms of these lower alcohol products, no, I, mm-hmm. I, it's, 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 they're simply less fermentable. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on on my own tangent here. So um, now another interesting thing that uh, I've experienced uh, you know, over the the last few years, and you know when I started out, I I was uh, I was told that okay, the lower your finishing gravity of your beer, the drier it is, and the less sweet. The perception is, and the higher the finishing gravity, the sweeter it is, and so thus, you know, your beer is dry or sweet. But I've I've had examples side by side of beers that uh, uh, Mike McDowell has brewed, where one has finished two Plato lower than the other, but the one that finished lower was sweeter yeah. than the one that finished higher. Yeah, and it's uh, there there again such a complex. Uh, uh, blend of uh, you know the alcohols and the residual sugars that make up that 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 residual uh, gravity. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, it's just uh, it's not that clear cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't, and uh, you know it it, it really is. A, um, there, there remain a number of things in in beer and in brewing mm-hmm. that are 
you know, they're, they're worthy of further research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We should have a few more university departments given over to doing it, and perhaps right. we could answer some of those questions. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, the residual depends what, how, how, you know, what is the reason for the uh, attenuation at that point? Mm -hmm. Is it attenuated because there's no fermentable sugar left behind? Mm -hmm. Or is it stopped fermenting because yes. you've run out of freemine and nitrogen? Or mm -hmm. is, you know, or is something else is limiting? problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that will also, okay. you know, have a clear uh, implication. Well, I've... I've always said that uh and i may be totally wrong on this I, I just i don't know where i got this idea but the simpler the sugar the sweeter it tends to be than the more complex the sugar or, or well if you look at the relative sweetness of sugars um relative to sucrose which is the stuff you dip in your coffee mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so that's got a relative sweetness of one um, from recollection, I think glucose is about 0 0.7, 0 0.8, so it's mm -hmm. less sweet. And maltose is less sweet still. It's mm -hmm. about 0 0.5. Mm -hmm. But fructose uh, is is more sweet. So mm -hmm. fructose is 1 1.2, 1 1.3. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, w when you split up a sucrose, you get one fructose and one glucose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so the, if you split up a sucrose, it becomes... Slightly sweeter. So the two the two numbers. Oh, yeah. slightly sweeter. It's, it is it's slightly sweeter. Right. So the, I think uh -huh. it's because it's, I must have got my numbers wrong somewhere. But but you know it's slightly uh -huh. sweet, and that's called invert sugar. Right, like right, right, right. Uh -huh. So yeah, um, which yeast do before they they utilize the sugar? They yeah, use they absolutely. have an invertase enzyme. That yeah, they it comes out of the yeast cell, and the sucrose mm -hmm. just gets chopped up outside the yeast cell. Um, so yeah, sure. The you know, glucose is sweeter than maltose. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. But mm -hmm. maltose is not as sweet as sucrose, and they're just mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. both disaccharides. So, mm -hmm. so it's, you know. Okay. But maltodex, uh, maltotriose is going to be less sweet less than sweet maltose. Well. Right. Right, right. And by the time you get to maltotetrose, which is mm -hmm. not fermentable, mm -hmm. it's not going to be very sweet at all. Mm -hmm. And bigger ones are you know. Okay, so there is some there is some method to my madness. I'm not totally You're not totally crazy. No. Totally crazy. All right, great. See, I told you I wasn't totally crazy. This guy's a doctor over here. <laughs> Lucky you have him to back you up. That's right. Yeah. So there. Right, let's 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 uh, make sure we isolate that, uh, that quote. Yeah. All right. Try to get one more in before you break. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Um, Joe from Chicago writes in that uh, a topic he rarely sees discussed is homebrew shelf life. Uh, he says, as I brew more batches, I'm beginning to accumulate and save bottles from past batches. Um, so I want to know, how, I try to plan out how long I can keep them around before drinking them. Uh, what are the different factors that are going to uh, affect my homebrew shelf life? Well, the two main ones are, uh, uh, well, three main ones are, how did you make it? Uh, how much oxygen have you got in the bottle, assuming it's in the bottle? Um, and what temperature are you storing it at? Uh, let's go in reverse order. Um, basically speaking, uh, the longer shelf life will depend on you keeping the beer as cold as you can without freezing it. Um, so, you know, the temperature makes a, a substantial effect. Um, if, you, if your beer is at uh, room temperature, whatever room temperature is, let's say it's like this nice room here, 20 degrees Celsius, um, then let's say it'll last three months. Um, if it's really good beer with a minimum air content in the bottle. Um, if you raise the temperature 10 degrees Celsius, then it's going to go stale two to three times faster. So by the time you get up to, you know, you know and I live in Davis, California, it can be 50 degrees Celsius in my garage in the, sorry, uh, four degrees Celsius in my garage in the summer, it's going to be stale in a couple of weeks. 
um, if it's in the refrigerator, it's got a lot of shelf life. So buy a lot of refrigerators. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, the way in which it's packaged is very, very important. Remembering that air will creep between the bottle and uh, the, cap. the cap. Uh, I'm assuming that this beer is in bottles. Um, yeah, I uh, think so. Yeah, and, um, you know, and I'm just talking flavour stability now. Um, if we talk about hay stability, then clearly if, you, if you've got it colder and you've not stabilised it properly, then that's going to increase the turbidity. But, you know, do you, do you worry more about the flavour life or the turbidity? Uh, we've said a lot about turbidity earlier on, but, you know, it's up to me, my own beer at home, uh, I would worry more about the flavour than I would about the, the appearance. Um, and uh, the second thing, the, the next thing is the, the foam will deteriorate with time as well. Uh, so the short answer is, um, you know, you can't store it for forever, you know. Um, and I would brew enough to uh, sustain my sensible drinking <laughs> <laughs> sensible being the key word. Right. So uh, temperature fluctuation is also a bad thing because yeah. it, it it's going to pull in more oxygen underneath yeah. that, that crown cap yeah. Yeah. Uh, as uh, the pressure expands with the uh, temperature. Correct. And uh, a lot of people will ask on, uh, on uh, the keg beer as well that uh, temperature fluctuation, does it have any negative effect on uh, beer stability? I know that... Uh, you know, in the I guess in the wine world, they they want a micro fluctuation because it helps pull oxygen or whatever through the through the wood or or whatever that might be. But in in uh, stainless kegs in beer, does uh, uh, somebody emailed me and said, "Hey, I I need uh, the room in my refrigerator. I've got my beer in there. I want to take my beer out, set it outside for a week while I ferment something else in the refrigerator." Right. Is that you know how does that shorten the life of my beer? Yeah. And, and would it just be temperature related? The, I, I, the cooling I, and heating. The major have an fact will be the, the you know the the actual temperature that it's going to then pick mm-hmm. up to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the classic ways of of aging beer for hay studies is to cycle the the, the temperature. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some brewers will hold the beer at uh, thirty seven degrees Celsius. Uh, you know, ninety eight. 99 Fahrenheit for a day mm-hmm. and then chill it down for a day to zero or four and that that will be one cycle mm-hmm. and in that way you can accelerate the breakdown of the product mm-hmm. so you know that, that's quite an extreme mm-hmm. and I don't know anywhere in the world where that happens mm-hmm. <laughs> other than in a laboratory mm-hmm. but it is a standard way of forcing uh, right. the beer so if you are going to cycle, you know, even if it's between 4 degrees Celsius and 20, 25 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. it's it's going to accelerate the breakdown of the mm-hmm. product. Well, and of course, uh, you know, the better your sanitation, oh, the less absolutely. bacterial load, yeah. uh, wild yeast load you have in your beer, critical. the m- longer it's going to be stable. Absolutely. And uh, a critical factor as well. Oh, uh, totally. And I, you know, I, you know, naively perhaps uh, assume that we're talking about a, a product here which has been uh, fastidiously produced with minimum microbial content. Well, then you're not talking about Justin's beer. No, you're <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> you're assuming too much, Charlie. And well, then just, uh, uh, just in terms yeah. of the beer itself, because we talked about sort of factors around the beer, right. just another part of his question was, does, does the gravity of the beer itself uh, play a part in uh, shelf life? Uh, yes. Um, 
you know, some of the really uh, high strength beers or high alcohol products, you know, then you might start to think that, okay, well, with some storage, we're going to get some interesting flavor changes taking place. Um, and you're going to get some of the nuances that the, the wine guys talk about, some of the acetal formation and so on. And that, that, that's, uh, you know, not entirely uncharted territory, but it's, it's, you know, that could be an argument, a positive argument for, for storing beer. Um, but certainly the, the lower gravity, uh, the lower alcohol products, you know, for most beers, uh, in the world, it's uh, from the time they're packaged. Now the clock is ticking, mm-hmm. and it's downhill. You know, well, and I, I don't want to drag this out because we need to take a break. But um, one of the things I've noticed is the darker the beer, yeah. the more highly kiln grains you have in there, the more flavor stable it seems to be, and oxygen stable it seems to be than uh, the the most pale beers. If I brew a uh, uh, you know a, a German Pilsner. And it's it's in perfect shape. It's absolutely fantastic at month, you know, three, uh, six months down the line. It's not going to be a good beer anymore. Yeah. If I brew a, uh, a, a stout of some kind, and it's perfect at month three, I can go several years. If it, all all being equal, all kept cold, all not being shaken around, uh, you know, good uh, sanitation practices, it will be stable for a much longer time and seem just as fresh. With uh, over a greater period of time, is that uh, yeah. antioxidants and all that well, stuff that people the, talk the, about? Well, there have been a number of studies which have suggested that when you kiln, you do produce some um, antioxidants, mm-hmm. and this is part of you know the the color reactions, the Maillard reaction, where you you're making the melanoidins and so on. Some of the intermediates are are, are radical scavengers, and so mm-hmm. they they are probably antioxidants. But you know the other component of it is that the flavor more, masks yeah, other things yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know if you've got a more robustly flavored product uh-huh. with a greater depth of flavor mm-hmm. um then it is going to mask mm-hmm. and it's and some of the stale characters and the age characters is not going to come through as readily okay. you know and, and and that's why i always say you know people are very rude about some of the the great american lagers uh-huh. uh and yeah sure they're Subtly flavored and gently flavored products, but they can't hide any crime. You can't hide anything in those, right, you know. Right. And so that makes them very hard to mm-hmm. make, you know. Well, what I noticed this on first it was uh, a, a Schwartz beer, yeah. and uh, versus you know essentially uh, very much a similar recipe, except for uh, the Carafa Special, which is the Hustless Carafa, and, right. and, and that seems more stable. Yeah. So uh, that's why I was thinking, oh, you know, there's something other than just flavor. There seems to be something else going on here that's keeping this more stable. There are certainly some people who believe that. I, uh, I reserve judgment. I don't, I, right. I, you know, it may be. <laughs> right. Okay, great. Well, let's take a short break. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but uh, we'll be back after the break with uh, more questions with uh, Dr. Charles Banford. Smart. Brew Strong. This is Brew Strong.
This holiday season is one of gratitude, giving, and winning. More Beer says thank you to all their wonderful customers with deals from Thanksgiving through New Year's, in addition to low prices, free shipping, and the More Beer deal of the day every day. And one lucky customer is going to win Regan's Big Fat Package, the very first More Beer pressurizable conical fermenter. Rolling out just in time for the holidays, it's their brand new redesigned stainless conical line with a new threadless racking port, new stand options, and a new pressurizable lid. They're giving away one of these new pressurizable conicals on December 31st. For every order you place with more beer between November 1st and December 31st, use the coupon code CONICAL up to once every day to enter yourself into the drawing. Go to morebeer.com for more details. The 2009 More Beer season of winning. Win yourself some great deals and maybe even a brand new conical fermenter. Enter today only at morebeer.com. Downtown Joe's, located in the historic Oberon Building in beautiful downtown Napa, California, offers an award-winning brew pub experience from 8.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day. For 15 years at the corner of 2nd and Main, Downtown Joe's has been voted Best Night Spot seven times and Best Brew Pub for the last four years in a row. Brewmaster Colin Kaminsky's handcrafted ales, like his Tailwagon Amber Ale and Double Secret Probation IPA, are the perfect accent to riverside dining, live music, and a relaxing outdoor patio. Don't miss the Beer of the Month, special rotating taps, and the BN Army Member Special. Wear your BN gear, get 10% off your beer. Visit downtownjoes.com to make reservations, peruse their extensive calendar of events, or just read more about their fantastic beers. Come enjoy the fine beer food and music downtown joe's the award-winning brew pub where you'll feel at home this sit down next to it grab yourself a paper towel and watch those yeast have sex you're listening to the Brewing network back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys brew strong All right, Charlie, appreciated that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you want to get right back into it? Yeah, let's get right back into it. Okay. Topic that's been coming up here on the BN lately is uh, no sparge brewing. So Don from New York, New York, wrote in, uh, besides using more grain, what are the disadvantages of a no sparge style of brewing? Um... Well, I mean, simply you leave stuff behind, you know what I mean? But uh, what are the disadvantages? I mean, one can only talk about advantages. I mean, what, what are you trying to brew? What's he trying to brew? Does he say? Uh, he doesn't say. And, and, and of course, we're talking about a home brewer. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't sort of using more grain doesn't matter too much to yeah, him. Yeah, he's loaded um, with cash and he can just pile it but up. But he doesn't say specifically what kind of beer he's uh, Your average about. average American pub beer... Yeah. Uh, and the goal being bring the best beer possible. That's what people always yeah. ask. How do I brew the best beer possible? Well, you know, it's it's really when you are over sparging, when you when you're really going to the last runnings that that really the real problems start. Mm-hmm. So in terms of you know, there's a balance there. You know, what what are the advantages? The advantages are that the you know you. You know, potentially you can get a very high gravity and you can produce some very interesting, uh, stronger, higher higher extract products. Um, I wouldn't say there are any, you know, the, the real disadvantages arrive when you're really trying to 
squeeze out the last the last drops mm. of product. Mm-hmm. Well, and how about when you're making something like a, a, a traditional uh, British mild, right. and uh, you you want to uh, avoid uh, getting too much. Uh, uh, Astringency, tannin extraction, polyphenol extraction from yeah. the uh, from the grain. Um, no sparge, and then add water to the to the runnings to uh, get to your gravity. Or yeah, is that going to produce the best possible flavor profile? If uh, you know, it, it, it again, it comes down to you know, suck it and see. Um, <laughs> if you pardon the expression, uh, <laughs> um, you know, in in terms of producing a uh, a traditional mile, which is sadly in decline now, mm-hmm. um, then you, you're not going to be... You're, I mean, you're going to be selecting the a grist that is giving you the best balance of, 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 of colour and maltiness, but without too much um, harshness roast character, because you don't want that. Um, but you are going to, you know, a, a brewer is going to be uh, not... He's not going to be over... Extracting, but he's certainly not going to be avoiding um, uh, the earlier runnings. Uh, it's it's he's going to do that, um, or she. So um, you know, it, it, it's horses for courses. Again, it, it really is. A, a, you know, in terms of avoiding astringency, it's 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 later on that really the problems mm-hmm. arise. I, I think my comment on that would be that you know, beauty is in the palate to the beholder. So, depending on the style you're trying to target, if you're trying to target a mild with a, with a no sparge beer, you know, or I guess what I'm saying, look at the style that you're trying to brew, and look at your perceptions of what you know characterizes that style. Mm-hmm. With a, with a mild, I think that's a kind of a good example. You, you know, there is a certain amount of uh, roast and and background graininess that you that you almost expect based on the commercial examples that you've tasted mm-hmm. now if um, if you brew that with a no, with a no sparge so that you really uh, minimize the the polyphenol uh, graininess or something you know kind of that you that so, that you can taste in a lot of miles um, then you're gonna think well that I didn't really hit my target. I didn't mm-hmm. quite make the beer that I want to make. But you can adjust for that with recipe. You can add some more roast grains to to pull some of that character in. Yeah, but you know when I when I think mild, I'm thinking of of miles from you know Midlands of England and the home of you know down in the industrial Midlands of England, the the, the steel mm-hmm. regions there, and the miles that I've got in in my uh, mindset and perhaps they're not, time they're not uh, roasty they're actually no, fairly sweet they're they're relatively sweet you mm-hmm. know okay. um so i i would um differentiate between something with a roasted uh, a more astringent character will be closer to a, in my parlance a, a stout mm-hmm. than a mild which would tend to be a, a somewhat sweeter mm-hmm. relatively low alcohol product you know mm-hmm. i mean if you think of something like Banks's mild from uh, wolverhampton which is incidentally the finest soccer team in the world. That's another story. <laughs> Which I was up at 4.45 this morning watching them live on the TV. Insane. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but, you know, B- 
Bonks's Mile from Wolverhampton is, you know, it's only, I forget the exact alcohol content, somewhere in the mid threes. Mm-hmm. Like three, two or something like and that. And my mother was telling me, yeah, by volume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my, my mother was telling me only recently that, um, you know, she, she remembers a time when, when people would, you know, they were working in the heavy industry, lots of heat around, and they sent out to the pub. Mm-hmm. And they'd be bringing jugs of this back in for for people, and they were working, you know, with heavy wow. mm-hmm. machinery and so on, drinking this because it it wasn't it was easy to drink and it was sweet and nutritious and not overly alcoholic and mm-hmm. so so f- I think we're a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we're probably digressing so well, but you know, yeah. for me, a mild is is a a darker, sweeter, mellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, toffee, not not diacetyl or toffee, but mm-hmm. caramel mm-hmm. Uh, uh, nature, uh, more so than a, 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 a roasted, burnt mm-hmm. type of, uh, okay. of thing. So that's it, that's that's good to hear because yeah. I think it, I, we don't get much mild here in the United States, yeah. of course. And what we do get, and what people tend to brew, and when I've tasted it, competitions oh, people, tends to be people tend to not know what they're doing here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you tend to get the last runnings of a brown ale mm-hmm. served yeah. as mild. You wouldn't, you know, for, for you'd use a malt for mild, in my opinion, that was not at the, you know, the the chocolate malt end, but more right. in, closer to the crystal. But mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. so you you put a lot, relatively large amount of this in to get a a, a, a caramelly character rather than less of a malt that has got a really harsh burnt character, which is mm-hmm. to me not right. But that's opinion. it's coming from a quality source all right another question mills writes in why is it when i brew with wireman and dingman's pills malt do i get a ton of break material as compared to foreign and domestic wheat and two row Uh, i'd have to look at those malts Mm. which which of those first two malts uh wireman or dingman's pill basically pilsner malts from from continental pilsner yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's curious, you know, it, it, he kind of goes on to ask, is it water chemistry uh, due to less modified Pilsner malt that's doing this? or? Uh, so he's comparing a Pilsner malt with a pale? With a domestic two-row. A domestic two-row, right. okay. You know, the break is going to depend on a whole bunch of different uh, materials. And the malt, um, you know, the factors that are going to be relevant are going to be things like modification. They're going to be protein content uh, and so on. Um, and it, it, it's without the analysis in front of me and without comparing them side by side, it'd be very difficult to say. But the break is going to be heavily influenced by those parameters. Okay. All right, good. Uh, here's another good question that came through. Uh, it says to Jamil and John, this is from uh, Marty in New York. Um, I've got an issue, although uh, most brewers might love to have this issue. My beers always finish dry, 10-10 or lower. And he says, although this is great for uh, my IPA or double IPA, I'm having trouble getting the residual maltiness in my stouts and porters. And he says, I judged at the New York State Fair, too, and it appeared every stout I tasted was just too dry and almost astringent. One of the judges commented that this may be from the maltsters. What are your <laughs> thoughts? Blame it on the maltsters. Yeah, that's what I well, said. Well, this, this you know, <laughs> speaks back to that uh, question I had about, um, you know, uh, t- People claiming, oh, you know, you get this maltiness from uh, higher finishing gravity, and you don't necessarily get maltiness from high finishing gravity. When, 
and in my opinion, when, when, when I say maltiness, I'm talking about the flavors of yeah. the malt. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about malt sugars and malt sweetness. Mm. If I'm talking about the sweetness, I talk about malt sweetness. If I'm talking about maltiness, I'm talking about the flavors. Yeah. So, you know, you can get those flavors and you can have a beer finish out um, at whatever gravity and you can still have those flavors. Um, if what you want is um, – see, in, uh, he's talking about stouts and dry stouts. Now, dry stouts do finish at a low gravity, and they, they do have um, a certain maltiness. I think you know you were talking about uh, nitrogen serving uh, affecting the kind of the overall impression of, uh, of the beer. Um, you know, what would you say to this guy? I, I don't know what to say to what, what, this guy I mean, the, this. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, when we're talking maltiness, we're talking flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we, we can just forget about the gravity in this instance. You know, um, the, the maltiness will, will uh, depend upon how the grain, the extent of modification, but also the extent and the way in which it's been kilned and dried. Um, and for roasted malts, roasted. Uh, the, f- the final gravity is going to be influenced by the fermentability. With, you know, and which is going to again depend on how that malt was produced, what its enzyme survival rate is, and how you carried out your mashing and so on. So the, the, the final gravity is going to be determined by fermentability. The maltiness is going to be all to do with how your grist was produced and what your grist uh, comprises. Um, it, it it really is as simple as that. But you know, uh, you know. Don't blame the monster. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know when I when Can't I see somebody, uh, and I've I've gotten this question a number of times where people say, you know, all my beers are finishing really low gravities. You know what's going on? I start to think, um, you know, bacteria or wild yeast, or you know, first off, I say, you know, they're like I'm mashing at you know 152 Fahrenheit. I say, well, try 160. <laughs> Yeah. Go ahead. And give, give, you know, you, you've got nothing to lose. Give it a try. If you still end up with a you know a, a lower uh, finishing gravity, then you know I've got to imagine there's some sort of bacteria breaking down those uh, complex sugars yeah. that uh, and and that's how you're getting so low. You know, yeah. if it, if it's not having a, an effect, then it re- it really is about temperature control in mashing because. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, a relatively subtle difference in in temperature can have a profound effect. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a, a malt which has got a high enzyme level mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. then you will need to go to a slightly higher mashing temperature to compensate for that. If you've got a relatively low enzyme malt, then, you know, the, the, you the mashing temperature needs to be... Yeah. yeah, so it's that, that enzyme level in the, in the grist balanced against the temperature... That is in your that you're striking at. Those are key, key determinants for final gravity. So if you're getting uh, a high quality malt from uh, uh, one maltster and you get an equally high quality malt from another maltster, there's variations in the malt that may require you to be a degree or two one way or the other yeah. uh, just to get the same result. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at look at the the uh, diastatic power. Of the malt on the malt analysis sheet, uh, it's in degrees Lintner. Correct. And it was that invented by Mister Lintner. Yeah, you know? it was. Okay. But I didn't know him personally. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about Pasteur? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My father may Louis. have known him. <laughs> Your friend Louis. All right, let's take a short break, and uh, we'll have more questions after this.
your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Push from the Brewing Network, and I want to tell you about the Brewmaster's Warehouse and how you can get 10% off your next order. I'm a pretty techie guy, but I've never seen an online store like this. It's awesome. Go to brewmasterswarehouse.com and click on Brew Builder. You can whip up a custom recipe so easily even Sven could do it. Seriously, it's slick. You can share your recipe with your own logo and notes to the Brewmaster's database if you want. And the best part, it keeps a running tally of the beer you're building while you're doing it. Then, bam, click Buy Recipe and your cart is filled and ready to go with helpful suggestions in case you forgot something. This thing is amazing. Brewmaster's Warehouse is run the way a home brewer would do it with great service, fast turnaround, and $6.99 flat rate shipping. Brewmaster's Warehouse and the Brew Builder blew me away. Check it out today at brewmasterswarehouse.com. I'm serious. And don't forget to put BNARMY in the discount code box for 10% off your order. Check out brewmasterswarehouse.com. Cheers. Nico, listen, our lawyer said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months and to the next meeting. Kids. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. So I'm the professional. <clears throat> Hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment nine years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer and Brew Free or Die IPA throughout California and Alaska. And now it's also available on draft at select accounts in the Bay Area. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in a can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. BN Army members, are you looking for a discount on hops? Keep listening. Nico's Homebrew Supply at nicobrew.com has hops by the ounce and by the pound. Choose from varieties like Amarillo, Centennial, East Kent Goldings, Holly Tower, Simcoe, Summit, Tomahawk, Warrior, Willamette, and more. And adding new varieties all the time, many for less than 20 bucks a pound. Whether a couple ounces at a time or an 11-pound bag, all hops are shipped vacuum-sealed and frozen straight to you. Nico's Homebrew Supply offers store-wide $5 flat-rate shipping and won't waste your money on unnecessary overhead or advertising. They're going bare bones and passing the savings on to you. The staff at Nico's Homebrew Supply loves to brew and is committed to keeping homebrewing affordable and accessible to anyone who wants to join in this great hobby. And for a limited time, use coupon code BNARMY at checkout for a Brewing Network discount. Visit NicoBrew.com. That's N-I-K-O Brew.com for your hops and more. NicoBrew.com, your bare bones buddy in the brewing business. Hey, what are you doing, man? Writing a review of WLP 400. What? You're reviewing yeast? Yeah. White Labs has home brewer reviews of all their strains. Are you new to these interwebs? Check it out. That's awesome. White Labs, your source for great yeast, invites all brewers to visit whitelabs.com to read and write your own reviews of all their yeast strains. Get real-world tips and tricks from other brewers who have made the most of their vials and post your own experiences. It's another way White Labs brings you closer to the best yeast on the planet. And send. 
There you go. You misspelled flocculate, dude. What? Ah, mother... White Labs. It's all in the vial. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Cut hours off your brewing sessions by using one of their 11 varieties of famous Williams malt extract. Their Williams German Pills is mashed with pure German Moravian two-row barley malt for a light blonde color and malty Christmas you just can't get from other extracts. Or check out their unique fermenters, draft equipment, bottling aids, and more. They even have their own line of precision hydrometers. Go to williamsbrewing.com to browse their vast selection and enter promo code BREW at the order checkout for $5 off your next order over $50. Orders placed by 3 p.m. ship the same day. Again, go to williamsbrewing.com and enter promo code BREW at checkout for $5 off your next order. Brewing is easy the Williams way. You're listening to the Brewing Network. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zainashef and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. Well, we really should keep the microphones going during the breaks because, you know... Where the good stuff happened. <laughs> yeah, well, we got, we got uh, Dr. Charles Bamforth here, and you know, he's, he's a wealth of fantastic information and insight, so uh, it's a lot of fun during the breaks. It's a real treat for us to have you here. We really appreciate you coming out and, uh, and spending this time with us. I know you've got uh, family uh, stuff to run off to today, and yeah. uh, that's uh, very important that you need to be there. So uh, well, It's nice to be here. Yeah, we'll make a, a point of having you back. I really appreciate sure. that. Thank you. Yeah, if we can talk him into coming back. I, no, no, no. Now that, now that, he's, yeah. now that you've seen the uh, the Rat Pad in Pacheco. Uh, <laughs> if we haven't creeped him out too much. First thing uh, Dr. Bear 470 comes in here and goes, oh, so you're single. So you're single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not going to get married for a long, long time based on what I see right here. That's yeah. right. <laughs> All right. Uh, we do have to okay. let uh, Charlie go. Yeah. It looks like All we have time for one, one more. last question. Okay. Um Karev in the chat room asks that he wants to understand more about the contact time for dry hopping um, and the relationship to that and the retention of aroma and flavor in beer. And then quickly as a follow-up, does dry hopping hopping in the secondary versus the serving keg um, affect the impact on aroma retention? Okay, well, my uh, real uh, experience and knowledge of dry hopping really pertains to English traditional cask ales. Uh, which of course uh, there's the the handful of hops are added to the uh, the barrel at racking, alongside uh, the uh, priming sugar and the icing glass findings, and of course uh, then the barrel will be rolled and uh, and find its way into the pub and it'll uh, be allowed to settle again. Um, so the whole contact time there is going to be of the order of of what a uh, couple of weeks. Um, and then, of course, once the barrel is uh, is uh, broached, then you've got three days. So, you know, if we're talking contact time, we're talking that sort of uh, length of time for traditional uh, English ale. Clearly, uh, you know, the, the factors that matter are the variety of the hop or the type of hop, um, the uh, stage at which you're going to introduce it, uh, and just how intense a hoppy character you want. Praying, please, uh, that there's no simple correlation between the intensity of dry hop character and quality. You know, the, 
a, a really good beer will be the right balance of, of maltiness and hoppiness. Um, so really, again, and I, I've said this twice now, so I'll say it a third time, it really is, well, you know, try it for yourself and see what works for you in the product that uh, you want uh, in terms of the stage at which you add it. Um, so choosing a type of hop and uh, introducing it in the way in which you you see fit. Um, I've seen all sorts of intriguing things in my travels. I saw one brewery on the East Coast uh, go out and buy uh, every set of women's tights they could find in the local shop, and they packed them solid with hops and threw them into the uh, <laughs> into the beer downstream. I don't know how long they left them there, but um, <laughs> they were clean tights. They're good, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, so really, uh, you know, it's it's a case of well, what works for you? What what gives you the int- intensity you want? But you know, tr- the whole thing started with traditional English ales, and the contact time there would be a matter of uh, a very few weeks. Uh, how much how much how much hops per barrel were they adding for those? Well, the the, the classic uh, way of describing it is a handful of hops. So, okay, so uh, that, that would be would that would be roughly. Half ounce to an Correct. ounce, yeah, something like that. Literally yeah. a handful of hops for a thirty-six gallon. Remembering that you know a, a barrel in the U- U- UK is bigger than a barrel in the US, thirty-six as opposed to thirty-one. So, but a handful of hops. Okay, fuggles preferably. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also, uh, any of our Nathan Smith, one of our favorite home brewers who comes on the show, he's done two uh, hoppy beer shows with us, and one of them really focused on dry hopping. So if you look at the Sunday session and listen to any of the Nathan Smith shows, he did a lot of the trial and error that uh, Charlie's suggesting you do yourself. So you can listen to him talk about that on those shows. It's interesting oh. when you talk about cask-conditioned ale. You know, trial and error comes into it. You know, we, we, I mentioned Isinglass. You know, we used to do all sorts of trials. Every season's crop of malt, you know, you had to do the trials to see mm-hmm. exactly the right amount of Isinglass that you had to put in, mm. uh, with you know, with with jars and glass-ended casks and so on. And it was trial and error. And uh, you know, the successful, most successful brewers would do that. They'd see what worked for them. Right. I was, I was always curious about Isinglass. I'm like, how did they start using fish guts in beer. <laughs> I wasn't there. I have no idea. <laughs> Can you imagine? I have no idea how it started. But, uh, intriguing to find out. Well, mm-hmm. one of the theories was that uh, you know they would be using a fish fish bladder or you know some sort of animal bladder for carrying around their yeah. their liquid, their beer in, and they would realize it would be clearer when they. After it was stored in the bladder or something like that. That that was, I think, one of the theories yeah. I read at one point. Yeah. I, who knows? I probably wrote that myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. I think that's our show for the day. We'll get you out of the, the studio only a few minutes late. Uh, and we really appreciate you again being with us. If you get a chance, uh, check out our sponsor, morebeer.com. They have great prices, great products, and they are great people supporting uh, what we do here. So make sure you support them. Also, if you get a chance, stop by the uh, Brewing Network store. You're going to find uh, Bruce Strong shirts there. Yep. Uh, John and I wear one, and we're going to make sure uh, Dr. Pamforth is wearing one before he leaves. And uh, also you're going to find some books in there from, uh, from us and uh, signed copies as well glassware, lots of goodies in in the store. And all that uh, goes to the bottom line of the Brewing Network, helps us uh, keep programming like this on the air. And remember, go out and brew a beer for yourself, uh, brew some for some other people, and uh, as always, brew strong. Brew strong, Cretans. 